Welcome to this bonus episode of Money and the Moonshot. Over the course of producing this series, we recorded over seven hours of interviews. Choosing what to select for the story we wanted to tell was tough. So, as a special bonus, here is the full interview with NASA's chief economist, Alexander MacDonald. Please subscribe if you want to hear more of the interviews we recorded for this series. An economist and historian, Alexander MacDonald wrote his doctorate on the economic history of American space exploration and is the author of the book The Long Space Age, published in 2017. He is an expert on private enterprises' involvement in space exploration, from the early days of astronomical observation in the 18th century through to the private-public partnership of the Apollo program and the evolving relationship between NASA and the private sector in the last decade. He has written and edited numerous NASA reports, including Emerging Space and Public-Private Partnerships for Space Capability Development, both of which evaluate the nature and importance of public-private cooperation in the 21st century. From his early work at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory through to his current involvement with the International Space Station National Laboratory, where he recently took on the role of NASA's program executive, Alexander MacDonald is one of the world's leading experts on NASA's efforts to produce scientific breakthroughs that will create economic growth and hopefully improve lives on Earth. In this interview, Alexander explains how these private enterprises have always had a place in America's efforts in exploring and understanding the cosmos, and gives us an insight into how NASA's relationship with commercial partners such as SpaceX and Blue Origin will advance our exploration of a solar system. Change has many faces. Names you'll never know. The bright-eyed, the brave, the visionaries. Where challenges exist, you'll find them. At City, we empower people who are out to change the world. Because tomorrow belongs to those who welcome it with open arms. City, welcome what's next. Alexander McDonald, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm delighted to have a chance to speak with you. I wanted to ask you first about the history of public-private partnerships in space exploration. If you go back to Mercury, Gemini, and onto Apollo, how did the partnerships between NASA and the private sector work and develop in those early days? Sure. So, you know, NASA's worked with private sector in the American industry, you know, since the beginning of the agency in 1958. You know, we had prime contractors for those vehicles, McDonnell Douglas for the Mercury capsules. Uh, we had North American Aviation for Apollo. And, uh, you know, we continue to have prime contractors through uh, the space shuttle. Rockwell. Some of those companies have now kind of been acquired and part of existing companies like Boeing. And now, of course, working with new companies that have kind of started up, uh, like SpaceX. And uh, in many respects, it's really a continuation. From the beginning, NASA has sent the majority of its funding outside of the agency to the American industry. And that's a trend that continues today. It's a process that requires some trust. You're not completely in control of the ability of a private contractor to do the job uh, and to meet deadlines. So in practice, how has that worked over the years? How have you got through the challenges involved? Well, I mean, NASA is an incredibly strong engineering culture. So uh, NASA, and through the Apollo program and through the U.S. missile programs in the 1960s, invented the discipline of system engineering. And so what NASA really does is conducts that system engineering of all of the different parts that have to come together for a spacecraft, right? Uh, the engines, the avionics, the computer systems, the aerodynamical testing, all of this is still managed at NASA. And NASA still conducts the, you know, the, the reviews of our private sector partners uh, to make sure that they meet the standards for, for safety of flight for our astronauts. But what we've done now over time is delegate 
more of that technical responsibility to the contractors so that we can streamline our, our processes effectively and ultimately be able to reduce the amount of, of expenditure that we have to have and you know, get a better deal for the taxpayer. Jim Bridenstine spoke about it as an evolution from a buyer of hardware, uh, of owning everything, to a purchaser of services. Can, can you talk me through that evolution? Yeah, I think the most important thing about the shift to being a purchaser of services is that back when NASA was the owner of the spacecraft, so to speak, you couldn't really pay a company to go and use that spacecraft and fly into space yourself. Because NASA owned that, NASA is the federal government, and you know, NASA is not in the business, nor is the federal government in the business, of selling commercial services. So what was really important about the shift to purchasing services is that it allows individuals or other companies or even other nations to be able to contract with American companies and purchase those human spaceflight services as well in addition to NASA. NASA is the primary customer for these systems. NASA is the primary customer for human spaceflight uh, private activities at this time, uh, certainly to orbit. But the hope is that other people will also be buying those services, which will mean more uh, revenue in, into you know, U.S. companies yes. uh, from abroad uh, and also to generate new uh, private activity as well. So that's really the, the core behind why that shift is important and what, why we think it's going to help open up uh, economic growth in, in new ways. So it's not just a question of NASA being okay with the private sector partners having other customers. It's actually desirable. Absolutely. The more customers, the more iteration you have as an economist, right? It moves you up the learning by doing curve quicker. The more we learn how to do this is, is a function of how often we do it. So we want to be doing as much spaceflight as possible. The more spaceflight we and the world does and the private sector does, the more capable our spaceflight civilization is going to be. So part of the theory, if I understand it, is if you get the private sector to do the mundane jobs in space, payload delivery and so forth, it frees NASA to do the things that we've historically associated with the organization, uh, such as exploration and endeavor. Is, it, is that basically how it works? That's certainly part of it. It's also about which of the parts of spaceflight and spacecraft production are the most repeated and repeatable. So one of the things that's harder to think about becoming a commercial service are things like sending unique scientific probes as close to the sun as possible. And the reason is because we don't do that very often. It's very hard and you're sending new scientific instruments there every time because you want to ask new questions about the sun and you want to answer new science questions. For launching cargo to the National Space Station, that is essentially the same problem every time. And so that is exactly the kind of thing that is amenable to the private sector taking over and figuring out how to turn that into a regular process. And human spaceflight is actually not entirely different at least to low Earth orbit. That is something that we want to keep doing on a regular basis. Uh, it's U.S. policy to always maintain continuous human presence in low Earth orbit at this point, which is a really important concept. Uh, that means that the U.S. government has decided that we're always going to have Americans in low Earth orbit. And maybe some of those Americans will be private citizens, not just NASA astronauts. So what does that mean? That means that we're going to be able to routinize and make regular human spaceflight. And so that's the kind of thing that the private sector is good at doing. However, those problems that require kind of first off, frontier expansion, new adventures, those are the kind of things that we're going to have to really stay involved with uh, at NASA in a kind of engineering manner, in an operational manner, because uh, they're incredibly challenging. No one's ever done them by definition. You know, you can only go to Mars for the first time once, and that's something that NASA still is taking the lead in. But even there, we're going to be working with our private sector partners, just like we did back in the Apollo days. How important is it that there is a commercial case for space? And moreover, that the public perceive that it's not just a burning of tax dollars, but something that will benefit the economy? 
Yeah, so for that, I actually tend to put it more in terms of the solo growth model. It's not just about commercialization, it's about economic growth for the nation as a whole. When Robert Solo did the economic growth model for trying to figure out what the contributions to overall 20th century American uh, economic growth were from capital, labor, land, adding all those things up in a production function, there turned out to be a residual that was not explained by the growth of those other factors of production. That residual was 50% of all the growth and has traditionally been kind of grouped and, and considered as technology improvement, productivity improvement. And so what NASA does and what NASA represents is an investment in the technological improvement and capacity of the entire nation. And it's been doing that since the Apollo program. It's been doing that since before it was NASA, when it was the uh, National Advisory Committee in Aeronautics, uh, from which NASA uh, emerged. It is really important that we invest in technology, because that is actually the basis of most of the modern economic growth that we've seen in this country and around the world. Um, and NASA continues to push the frontier in a number of areas that are, are directly relevant to national economic growth. But we've also seen an evolution in the private sector itself. Uh, traditionally, we used to think of the real titans of American industry in aerospace, such as Lockheed Martin and Boeing. And then more recently, obviously, many new entrants, uh, most obviously SpaceX and Blue Origin, but dozens of others besides. So how has that affected NASA? And what do you make of this evolution that we're seeing? Well, NASA has actively encouraged it throughout. NASA's uh, investments in the COTS program, the Commercial Orbital Transportation uh, Services program, was the core investment that allowed SpaceX to start expanding. And it was the commercial resupply services uh, that allowed SpaceX to then routinize its launch vehicles. So NASA has long seen itself as an active encourager of new entrants and an active encourager of private individuals who want to spend their own capital in a manner that advances the nation's space exploration capacity. That's going to have to be our mentality for as long as we have a space program, which hopefully is an infinite uh, process. There are intrinsic motivations that individuals have that mean that some people really want to spend their resources going into space. NASA, as a, as a federal government agency, is constantly looking to encourage that tendency amongst individuals, whether they have a lot of money or whether they're just individuals who want to contribute through engineering or through you know, whatever manner they, they think that they can contribute. What NASA has done is actively encourage new entrants through a variety of programs, from everything from our major human spaceflight programs down to the small business innovative research grants that we preferentially give to small businesses to encourage new companies. That is actively part of how NASA thinks about growing the overall space industry in this country. Yeah, it was interesting when the first contracts were announced into the Eclipse Commercial Lunar Payload Program. There were nine contractors invited to bid, and then I think a further five added more recently. And it occurred to me that in some sense, NASA had become not exactly a venture capitalist, because I suppose the return on capital to you is not essential, but certainly a catalyst in the way that you might think of venture capital uh, as a forcing function. So is it right to think of it in that way? That's interesting. Eclipse, uh, those nine companies, and then the more recent five, what that represents is essentially NASA saying, you uh, are part of a catalog that we can now choose from, and not just NASA, that any proposers to NASA for missions, that in the future they can also propose to use those things. So that is available to NASA programs that could be you know, run out of the Space Technology Mission Directorate, it could be run out of the Science Mission Directorate, and so those companies are now on a catalog. What then matters are the task orders that are given, and those task orders actually represent the missions that are funded. Right now there are two task orders out there for privately operated but NASA funded missions to take science payloads to the moon. The hope is that that model can grow again in terms of buying uh, commercial services for our lunar activities. And so in that case, we're not acting as much as venture capitalists as we are opening up the aperture to 
any company that has a capability that seems relevant to achieving our goals of returning humans to the moon, building up a capacity on the moon, and then using that knowledge of, of lunar exploration to go on to Mars. Any companies that can contribute to that in terms of cargo payloads, we're interested in working with. And then we evaluate their capabilities, decide which task orders we want to go out with, and then that results in funded missions. Back in the Apollo days, it was simply NASA as an instrument of the state directly paying contractors. Now, these days, Virgin Galactic is listed on the New York Stock Exchange. SpaceX has venture capitalists on its board. So how has the nature of funding space exploration changed over time? So um, I, I have to kind of step back to my old academic career for a second because I spent a, a non-trivial portion of my life doing a kind of PhD in the long-run economic history of space exploration. What's interesting is that although we're seeing this change relative to Apollo, what we're also actually seeing is actually a return to the model that existed before NASA. So when you go back to the 19th century, 95% of the funding for U.S. observatories, these are the Lick Observatory, the Palomar Observatory, the Mount Wilson Observatory, kind of world's largest observatories at their time in the late 19th century and early 20th century, they were funded by private individuals. Those telescopes were funded by uh, James Lick and Andrew Carnegie and the Rockefeller Foundation. Those investments were not trivial. They were billion dollar class uh, investments or expenditures put in GDP equivalent terms today. What we're really seeing is a reemergence of high net wealth individuals who are interested in achieving both a legacy for themselves and also to contribute to you know, the human uh, scientific process more generally. Now married with the combination of uh, private sector companies and using the markets and contracts to accelerate the development of these capabilities that align with the intrinsic motivations of the individual. So what I think we're gonna see is a continued melding of government funding and private individuals and private companies who have their own objectives in space continuing to work together to uh, accelerate our expansion out of the cosmos. And I think if you expand the timescale away from the 1960s you know, to today, which is a relatively short period of time, instead look on, uh, over the course of the last few hundred years, what you see is that it's always these different forces working together. Sometimes some are more dominant than others, but there's always individuals with intrinsic motivations. There are always governments and individuals looking to signal to the world their capabilities and signal to the world the leadership of the world, so to speak. And those forces, I think, will continue to work in tandem and hopefully continue to uh, push us out into the cosmos. So private funding in space is nothing new. Before even the Apollo program, right after the very large observatories in the U.S. were being built in the late 19th century, you have people like Robert Goddard who emerged. Well, Robert Goddard was the U.S. pioneer of liquid fuel rocketry. Well, where did he get most of his money? Well, he actually received tens of millions of dollars in today's terms from the Guggenheim family because they uh, and their friend Charles Lindbergh were very interested in advancing aeronautics and they were funding Robert Goddard to advance that. So again, private funding. People who were inspired by Robert Goddard's activities and his first launch of liquid fuel rocket in 1926 started forming private societies, uh, what was initially called the American Interplanetary Society, which became the American Rocket Society, and which continues on today as the AIAA, the premier aerospace membership organization uh, in the United States. And what happened after that? Well, uh, some of those members of the American Rocket Society formed the first private space company, Reaction Motors Incorporated, which was funded by Laurent Rockefeller as a venture capitalist in the 1940s and 50s, all before NASA's even formed, all before America even goes into space. And so, again, I, I think it is really important to remember that the history of spaceflight doesn't begin at Apollo, and now we're seeing a new phase. 
The history of spaceflight begins in some respects as soon as Galileo Galileo looks through the telescope and sees that the moon is a world. And all of a sudden people across Europe and across you know, the planet to a certain extent begin thinking about how we're going to construct machines to get there. And there's a long history of intellectual development and social development and economic development that then leads to the point where Apollo happens and we're now thinking about the next phase, which is just a new iteration on this long cycle of humans thinking about how to explore the universe. I want to bring you back to Apollo in light of something you said earlier about the importance of space exploration, among other things, uh, as an investment in technology with greater knock-on effects throughout the economy and society. And I think it's commonplace to try to make an argument for Apollo that beyond the enormous human achievements, it also made a great contribution to the consumer world and the technologies uh, that are gradually brought into the mainstream. So maybe talk to me a little bit about that and how that's played out. I'll just highlight two major uh, technological achievements that had kind of direct you know, consumer applications, so to speak, right? So in the 1960s, the Apollo program and other associated missile programs represented 75% of all global demand for semiconductors. NASA did not invent the semiconductor, but it was space programs that created the demand to scale all semiconductors which provides the basis for all of the computer and internet-enabled world that we all uh, enjoy or deride, depending on how you think about it all, today. In addition, the term software engineering directly emerges from the Apollo program, because through the process of thinking about the calculations of what is required to get to the moon to monitor all the systems, had to essentially invent the discipline of software engineering. And of course, the Apollo guidance computer was the first digital computer that was used and flown to the moon and back in order to help guide the astronauts on that journey. And so that's a great example of how setting these ambitious goals and then challenging people and funding people to figure out how to achieve them results in technologies that have broad application. It's not because people decided we need the digital computer. It's because we set an ambitious goal that we had no idea how we were going to achieve it that resulted in a flow of funding to brilliant innovators that then solve problems that then led to these types of applications that we all now um, have in our lives. There was a report that you were the principal author on that I particularly enjoyed. It's from 2014, and it spoke specifically about potential public-private partnerships, and it looked at a range of areas, including robotic mining, uh, liquid rocket engines, wireless power, and so forth. So six years on from that, where do you think the progress has been made, and where does it lag? It's a really interesting question. You know, that was a NASA report that we did, a big team that did it and, and co-authored with uh, Andrea Riley, who was my co-lead on that project. We identified those areas of technology because we thought that they were ones that both would be able to contribute to NASA's long-term goals for exploration and development and directly contribute to economic growth. Robotic mining, for example, is one of those areas where, as we think about utilizing resources in situ in other worlds in order to save the amount of mass that we have to send to these other worlds, those technologies would be applicable to making mining more autonomous here. So we identified those kind of areas. What's interesting, though, is that in the process of creating that report, we had actually identified a bunch of other areas, like public-private partnerships for delivering cargo uh, out to around the moon, or public-private partnerships to even delivering crew to the moon. But at the time, NASA and all our other stakeholders in the space community wasn't sure that we were ready to really go there yet. And so what's changed in the last five years is that now that those are actually the exact kind of partnerships that we're going after. And so what's really changed is that 
the success of industry in demonstrating various capability, such as launch and landing, accelerating the development of things like suborbital uh, human space flight, uh, the success of private companies in deploying large constellations of small satellites. All of these activities have given NASA and the U.S. government more broadly the confidence that we're able to engage in ever greater levels of public-private partnership. What's interesting is that the, the success of the private sector in the time that has elapsed between the writing of that report and where we are today has meant that now that we're actually looking at even more ambitious goals than we were prepared to uh, identify at the time. So where does the line fall between what NASA will always do and what they will always subcontract? You know, I mean, when you think about the age and future of the universe, always is a very, you know, problematic word. But I think what NASA will always be doing is identifying and operating and integrating and architecting the missions to the frontier. What we're going to continue to experiment with and work with over time is the ways in which we engage people in the various institutions that people tend to organize in in order to achieve things and the kind of contractual relationships, right? We have change that over time. Again, NASA began as an advisory committee on aeronautics in the First World War, and it has evolved greatly ever since then. We're going to continue to evolve. And so I think actually we try not to think about absolutes. What we try to think about is what do we need to do today to get the mission done? NASA is a mission-oriented agency. And today we have a new mission, which is to return humans to the moon as rapidly as possible by 2024. And then use our knowledge on the moon, uh, of operating the moon for months at a time, to then conduct the first mission to the surface of Mars. That is the mission, and we are looking at all of the tools in the toolbox uh, to figure out how to get it done. It must be hard to think long-term when one is necessarily subject to the vagaries of public opinion and political change. I mean, every government that comes in has a different idea of what the space program should be. So how do you deal with that? How do you plan so far ahead knowing that administrations will change along the way? Well, thankfully, physics doesn't change all that often, at least to our knowledge. And so there are certain things that you know you're going to need to do. You know that you're going to need to have certain types of heavy lift capability in order to get all of the, the mass and the propellant for a journey to Mars into space. You know you're going to need certain types of robotic precursors in order to identify your landing sites. And so what NASA does is, as a, you know, as a, as a career civil service, basically identifies these things that we're going to need and tries to make the case for these different pieces, for the goals that have been articulated by Congress and by the, you know, by the White House over time, and say, well, in order to achieve these things, here's what our engineers and our scientists thinks we're going to need to do. We make the case for them, and then we try to support the different objectives that we get through legislation. What also NASA really relies on is these general enduring purposes of exploration, discovery, and development. These things have not changed since the Space Act of 1958. NASA continues to advance the frontiers of, of aeronautics, which is one of the primary purposes of NASA before, and still is today. A question that arises is that human spaceflight perhaps isn't necessarily the best way of achieving the best return on investment for space exploration. So if I asked you as an economist thinking of risk and reward, where does human spaceflight fit into that equation? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting way to think about it. I think that is a particular uh, lens on the question that I don't really think is all that helpful. We do many different types of things. We play music, we 
dance, we go skiing, we do bungee jumping, we do all these things, um, not because we do a risk reward calculation in our head beforehand of whether or not it's worth the risk to you know, begin a marathon. If we feel it in ourselves that this is something that we wish to achieve, we decide we're gonna go do it, we figure out how to go do it. Human spaceflight is a version of that. One of my favorite quotes uh, was by Harold Urey, uh, who was a Nobel Prize winner and, and the, the um, experimenters behind the Urey Miller experiment. And he uh, gave an interview in the early 60s uh, to a newspaper basically saying he didn't think that it made sense to send humans into space. Right? He was very negative on this process. He was a very respected scientist. And then in a congressional testimony, he then you know, recounts how uh, he called back the newspaper the next day and asked him to tear up the interview because he'd realized overnight that any time that humans have the opportunity to undertake a great new piece of adventure or a great new opportunity for discovery, all of human history shows that humans avail themselves of that opportunity. And whether he thought it was a good idea or not, some humans were going to go do it. And that is the reality of human spaceflight. It's not about cost benefit. Uh, enough humans on this planet have decided uh, that human spaceflight is a valuable endeavor. And as a result, uh, we thankfully receive taxpayer funding in order to advance that process. And nothing about popular culture or general sentiment suggests to me that we're in the process of reducing that support. In fact, quite the opposite. We're seeing more interest than, than ever before in human spaceflight. Our most recent class of astronaut uh, candidates who were selected came from the largest number of submissions that NASA had ever received. So we're seeing a growing interest in human spaceflight here in this country, and we're seeing it across the planet with the emergence of new spaceflight programs uh, across the world. So for me, it's not about cost-benefit analysis. Even though I am an economist, it's about the fact that people have decided that we're going into space, and more and more people are figuring about how they're going to be part of it. Thank you. That was fascinating. Anything to add in conclusion? Uh, no, just uh, my thanks for uh, the great questions. And, um, you know, thanks uh, to everyone listening who uh, is doing their bit to contribute to the growing space economy. Our next episode will feature a complete interview with venture capitalist Steve Jurvidson. Jurvidson was an early investor in SpaceX, Tesla, Planet Labs, Memphis Meat, and Hotmail. He currently sits on the board of both SpaceX and Tesla. When I first proposed SpaceX an investment, I got a pretty harsh condemnation. I remember the email sent to my entire partnership that said we should not let our investment passions cloud our investment judgment. To Richard Branson's credit, when the Khashoggi affair started to break, when it was like it seemed like something really untoward had happened, he was like, no way, we're not going to do business with this group. I don't understand how someone invests in the 20th, the 50th, the 92nd, the 103rd. Like, what are they thinking? If SpaceX succeeds and we're a multiplanetary species, that might go down like one of humanity's greatest hits. History books could be written about them. This has been a Euromoney audio production created by Chris Wright and Chris Hunt.